Well, I'm very glad to be here, and I'm uh, grateful to Jason for inviting me again. Uh, we're distributing uh, copies of this book with a great cover, and in it you uh, will be able to find the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I've been talking about the Heidelberg Catechism here in June. It's, I don't remember if this is my third or fourth time, but uh, I'm, I'm going to leap ahead to a, a particular section that we haven't looked at yet. We're going to start with question 59 today. And uh, I'm doing that because this is uh, 2017, and it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So I thought it would be good to look at some specifically reformational material uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, although the term justification by faith does not appear in questions 59 through, uh, what is the section, and uh, 63, uh, th this is the material that covers the, that theme. Uh, so uh, we, we won't have to worry about uh, how far we get today. Uh, I, I'm going to try to fill in some background and, and lift up some questions out of uh, this block of material, questions 59 to 63. And uh, we'll just pick up next time where I leave off and just keep doing that because I'll be coming back for four weeks. Uh, so I'm very happy uh, to be here, as I said. And Jason mentioned that I have been involved in an international ecumenical dialogue uh, with Roman Catholics. There's an organization called the World Communion of Reformed Churches. Jason, are, are the evangelical Presbyterians... Uh, 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 yeah. Yeah, they're members of that. So uh, I, I was part of a team of about five uh, Reformed theologians uh, meeting with five uh, Roman Catholic theologians over a period of about six years. And justification was one of our uh, points of focus. And uh, we wrote a, a final statement and the, ref the uh, used to be called the World Alliance. <laughs> Uh, and alliance was a translation of the German word Bund, and the German word Bund is, is usually translated covenant, so it, the, the covenantal emphasis would, would have been especially reformed, but uh, when they expanded and brought in other uh, members, churches, uh, they shifted their name slightly to the world communion of reformed churches. So anyway, I was, I was representing the world communion, and you may know there's something called the Joint Declaration on Justification that was signed by the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics in 1999. Uh, it's not a perfect document by any means, but it was a step forward uh, in bringing about healing around the, the very points that had divided the churches uh, in the Reformation. So uh, the Reformed churches, and so the, the WCRC, the World Communion, had not ever affiliated with the Joint Declaration. But partly through this dialogue, uh, they came to a place where they agreed to affiliate. And I wrote the first draft on justification uh, that will be a signing statement attached to uh, <clears throat> you know, the uh, original Joint Declaration, which, which you could find on the Vatican website. And then the Methodists uh, joined uh, back in 2003, so they had a signing statement. Uh, what I wrote was modified, some of it was condensed, but about, about uh, two-thirds of what I wrote will be in there, so uh, eventually there'll be a signing statement 
I, I think they're waiting until October of 2017 to actually have the, uh, the final ceremony. But uh, justification is a question in which uh, I am particularly interested. So uh, I'll, I'll try to take you through questions 59 through 63 uh, in the Heidelberg and uh, bring out some of the meaning and, and background. I, I think it's a very good statement, but it's perhaps not a particularly systematically organized statement, so I'm gonna fill in some gaps and make some connections that are only implicit. But before I do that, I'd like to distribute a chart which uh, I had a student make for me. It, it's very hard to get this information from uh, published sources. You can get numbers, so you can find out how many Roman Catholics are there in the world, you know, how, how many members of the Reformed churches, how many uh, Lutherans, and so on. But getting the percentages uh, is difficult. So uh, we took the most recent numbers, and uh, he developed this pie chart for me. And so th this gives us uh, a kind of helicopter view of world Christianity at the present time. Are there enough copies to go around? Does everybody have a copy? I, I, I made 25. Uh, I, I didn't think we'd have a bigger turnout than that. Okay, well, as you can see from uh, looking at this pie chart, uh, Roman Catholicism represents 50% of world Christianity. And this is actually a kind of a staggering figure, uh, not only because they're the vast majority of the world's Christians, but also because they are arguably the world's largest and the world's oldest institution. So that mean that this kind of uh, leaves me with a set of puzzles as a Reformed theologian since we believe so much in providence. And you know, when the Reformation started, I think Luther and Calvin expected that maybe the Roman Catholic Church would wither away and uh, the, the Protestant churches would eventually become world Christianity. But it didn't happen that way. Uh, and that uh, one half of the pie, I mean, it, it, was, it was easier, as far as numbers go, when uh, the world population was roughly six billion. It, it's more than seven billion now, so it's not as easy to do the math in, in your head. But when, when it was around six billion, uh, Roman Catholicism represented one billion Christians. So it's, it's over one billion today. And uh, back when it was six billion, there were, there were about two billion Christians in the world, you know, so the other half of the pie. And um, now it's something like 2.25 or, or something like that, you know, dividing up. And of course, the world population keeps growing and so on. But look uh, where uh, the Reformed tradition comes in. Uh, so uh, we're about 3.75% of world Christianity. In other words, uh, relative to Roman Catholicism, we're, uh, we're a pretty small fraction. And even if you put the, the Reformational churches together and, and include uh, the Reformed, the Methodists, the Lutherans, and, and the Baptists, 
uh, together, we don't amount to that much more than uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy is roughly 12% of world Christianity. So that means when, when you think about Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy together, the vast majority of uh, the world's Christians represent what I would call high sacramental churches. And they do not have a robust doctrine of justification by faith. So I, I think this is a special contribution that uh, the Reformation has to make. I, I actually think the Reformation was about something, uh, about something important. I think it needed to happen. Uh, but there are doubts these days about whether we even need to have all these Protestant churches. Uh, you know, I, I have some highly placed Catholic friends who are uh, increasingly skeptical about uh, uh, Protestantism and whether it should really exist anymore. There, there was a group, I don't know if they're still meeting, uh, called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and it was, it was uh, uh, evangelical uh, Protestants meeting together with Catholics, and they worked through a number of different doctrines and felt that uh, the, the points of difference were minimal. Uh, I, I think sometimes they are, but part of what I want to do in uh, the several weeks that I'll have with you this June, I'm going to lay some foundations this week and next week, and then try to zero in on just what is distinctive about the Reformation, especially as understood by the Reformed tradition, our tradition, uh, over against Roman Catholicism. So uh, uh, it's not easy to be fair and precise about just where uh, there's a parting of the ways, and, and there's a lot of uh, well-meaning pressure to try to minimize the differences and accentuate uh, the points in common. You know, I'm not against that, but I do think we need to pay attention to the differences, and Luther himself thought that uh, the church would stand or fall with the doctrine of justification by faith. So Luther felt that the doctrine of justification by faith represented the heart of the gospel. And I think this is still a point at which Protestants and Catholics do not uh, really converge. You know, it, it's, uh, it's easy to use language that uh, glosses over differences, but I, I'm going to want to look at that fairly carefully. But we, we have to recognize that, we, that we're, you know, we're sort of like the mouse that roared if we're only 3.75% of world Christianity. And even if you put the Lutherans in there, and then you know, the Methodists, the, Episcop the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, you know, they, they may or may not have a robust reformational understanding of, of justification. Some segments in those traditions do, some, some don't. The Pentecostalism, as is evident from the chart, uh, is growing rapidly. Uh, today in world Christianity, especially in the global south, or what some people are calling the majority world. So perhaps the fastest growing uh, element within world Christianity would be Pentecostalism. But Pentecostalism, of course, is not one thing. You know, it, it's many different things. Uh, it's too soon to tell where it's going to pan, how it's going to pan out. I think uh, some Pentecostals are close to the historic Christian faith, but some are not even sure whether they want to affirm a doctrine of the Trinity. You may have heard of Jesus-only Pentecostals and so on. 
So uh, the vast majority of the world's Christians, in effect, come down more on the side of sanctification than on the side of justification. Uh, they, they have a, a, a version of Christianity that involves sanctification without justification. So as long as that situation persists, I think the Protestant voice is absolutely necessary. Uh, we get a, a strong indication of what uh, justification by faith means from the Heidelberg Catechism. So I, I want to turn, uh, I, I had been going through them uh, in kind of the order in which we find them in my previous uh, years here, but I, I want to jump ahead to questions 59 to 63 and make some comments on them. And uh, I'm not sure how far I'll get today, but I'm not uh, too concerned because whatever I can't cover today, I'll be able to cover uh, next week and the week after. And, and I have some other handouts that I'll give you at, at that time. But uh, another thing that I do in preparing for uh, my talks here is to consult the Heidelberg Catechism in the original German. And I look at different English translations of the Heidelberg Catechism because uh, some decisions have been made in the version that you have in front of you in the gray book about how to translate certain uh, phrases from the German. And other English translations uh, are slightly different, and, and these differences are important. I, I don't think there's anything terribly wrong with uh, the version that you have in the gray book, but uh, it, it, it was done, I think, with an eye to making it intelligible and making it easily understandable, whereas the original German and some other English translations get into uh, a terminology that uh, goes deeper actually, than th this particular translation. So uh, question 59 uh, says, what good does it do you, however, to believe all this? Well, what do they mean by believe all this? Uh, up, you know, we, we've got a lot of the Heidelberg Catechism behind us now that, we, that we've kind of leapt over. I, I think I left off on question nine last year, and now we're jumping to question 59. But the Heidelberg Catechism has been giving an account of the Apostles' Creed. So uh, the, the last few questions right up to 59 deal with the last part of the Apostles' Creed. So all this, I think, refers to what the Heidelberg Catechism has taught about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so what good does it do you to believe all this, to believe uh, the Apostles' Creed? And here I want to make an initial distinction uh, between what I'll call the what and the who. Believing in something, you know, believing in certain doctrines, believing that certain teachings are true, that they are the case, that's the what. And believing in Christ, believing in the person of Christ. So uh, the idea of faith or the idea of belief has this double reference, you know, the what you know, the doctrinal content, and the who. And I, I happen to think that uh, it's most important to think of believing in Christ first and thinking of the doctrines that are involved in that context. 
So I, I want to give a kind of precedence to the who over the what, to the person of Christ over beliefs about Christ. So believing in Christ is not entirely the same, of course, as believing certain doctrines about Christ. I don't think they can be separated. I don't think you can have one without the other. You can't believe in Christ without making certain uh, truth claims about Christ or knowing certain things that are true about Christ. I mean, it's, it's not that different in a personal relationship or even in a marriage. You know, my, my wife is a person, but there are certain, I think I have certain true beliefs about my wife. You know, I, I, I think there are certain things that are the case about my wife. I couldn't know my wife without knowing certain true things uh, about her. So the who and the what can't be separated. They belong together. But the personal element, I think, has the precedence. And I actually think it does for the Heidelberg Catechism also implicitly. I don't think that's a deep issue. But I just wanted to lift up that distinction because the way that question 59 is formulated, believing all this has to do with believing about whereas uh, there's a presupposition there that's not stated yet about believing in Christ. And justification will hang, most importantly, on believing in Christ. You know, the person of Christ will be the linchpin for thinking about the reformational understanding of justification. And in fact, uh, the word justification does not appear in these questions, or as far as I can tell, uh, anywhere in the Heidelberg Catechism. This, this separates it from uh, the Westminster standards. You know, I, I'm probably the last of a dying breed, but when I was a boy in the sixth grade, I went to confirmation class, and uh, we were instructed on the basis of uh, the shorter Westminster Catechism. And you may know the, the so-called Westminster standards involve a shorter catechism, a larger catechism, and then a long confession. So this, this is a, a reflection of the fact that the Reformed tradition has two main branches. One branch is continental and European, and the other branch, the, the more Presbyterian side, runs through England and Scotland and then into America. So on the continent, people use the Heidelberg Catechism. I think the Heidelberg Catechism is still used on the continent, and it's used especially in the U.S. from those church, by those churches who came to the U.S. from the continent. So it was the Dutch Reformed. I think this gray book may have been translated by the Dutch, Dutch Reformed uh, Church. I don't know if it was CRC or, uh, uh, or RCA. Um, and then the German Reformed also brought the Heidelberg with them. So the Heidelberg Catechism has a presence in America through these you know, somewhat smaller uh, denominations. If, if, if you look at that wedge, you know, in world Christianity, we're only 3.75%, wasn't it? But there are differentiations in there. You know, they're Dutch, they're German, there's a, a English, there's Scottish Presbyterian, there's American Presbyterian. But it was, it was the uh, British Isles uh, and then uh, the, the uh, immigration from there into the U.S. that established the Westminster standards uh, in, in the U.S. and in the Reformed churches. So the, uh, the Westminster standards haven't traveled through time as well 
as the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the Westminster Standards are more technical. It almost seems like they were written by lawyers. Uh, and um, the Heidelberg Catechism ha has more of a religion of the heart. And, you know, uh, it's always coming back, to, you know, beginning with the, the wonderful first question. I, I think we spent a whole uh, June on the first question when I started coming here because it's such a magnificent question. Well worth memorizing, by the way, uh, certainly looking at. What is your only comfort in life and in death? See, that, that note of comfort, that, that, that kind of spiritual uh, religion of the heart is not as evident in, in the Westminster standards. So uh, the Heidelberg Catechism represents a sort of moderate uh, Calvinism. You know, certain questions it doesn't go into. It doesn't go into double predestination, for example, as the Westminster standards do. But yeah, there is a tendency, I, I've seen this, I actually helped, uh, I was on a committee that helped write a new catechism for the PCUSA uh, back in the late 90s, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's still authorized for use. It was adopted in the 1998 General Assembly. And in the committee, there was always this tension between whether we should try to be uh, precise or whether we should make it easily accessible. And that's always a translation problem. You, know, you, you see it in the new revised standard version, which I, I don't care for very much. I'm glad to see you use the evangelical you know, uh, uh, ESV, English uh, standard version. Uh, it, it's better, it's, it's closer to the King James. Uh, sometimes in the NRSV, sometimes in this, this particular translation of the Heidelberg Catechism, the translators try to make it easy for the reader. And, and maybe in our soundbite culture, yeah, that's not a bad idea. I don't know. Uh, maybe it presupposes people aren't going to study or, or ponder it. That they don't. They don't want something uh, too demanding intellectually. Yeah, I'm glad that I was uh, introduced to the shorter Westminster Catechism because in the sixth grade I did not have a clue what justification and sanctification uh, may have meant. You know, but th those were terms. Uh, indigestible terms that I, that I had to to read, mark, uh, learn, and inwardly digest. You know, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Uh, you know, it, it gave me something to think about. Whereas the, the, these translations that make it a little easy for you don't uh, make you pause and, and scratch your head and wonder what's this about, and maybe maybe keep pondering a, a question like that. So. Uh, the, the first answer here in the translation that we have, it says, in Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. Now, I think that's a good translation, and, and I don't want to make it seem as if it's deeply problematic, but the German says something a little different. It puts the emphasis uh, uh, in a somewhat different place. For example, uh, we have the preposition with here, right with God, but the German is for, which would mean before God, you know, in God's presence. And uh, the, the, the word translated as right here is gerecht, which uh, other English translations uh, render as righteous. 
in Christ I am righteous before God, not just in Christ I am right with God. So we would have to ask, what does it mean to be right with God? What does it mean to be righteous before God? Yeah, I, I prefer righteous before God. Gerecht vor Gott. And what's the opposite of righteous? What's the opposite of righteousness? I actually had a student in my introduction class this past semester. Uh, I was going into this stuff, and sometimes I presuppose too much. And she wavers and says, what does righteousness mean? Now, I've heard this word all my life. You know, What does righteousness mean? And I said, what's the opposite of righteousness? The opposite of righteousness is sinfulness. And uh, so I, I made the <coughs> distinction between who and what, the person and content. And uh, now... Uh, I want uh, to focus on uh, the difference between righteousness and sinfulness. And I, I think for both Luther and Calvin, in the background here, uh, and Luther especially stressed this in, in his sermons, is the idea of the tree and its fruit. You know, Luther loved this image from the teaching of Jesus. You know, a good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. So if we let fruit uh, pertain to actions, to what we do, so good fruit would be good actions, bad fruit would be sinful or, or wicked actions, uh, there's a prior situation. The, the fruit is produced by the tree. So if you have good fruit, it comes from a good tree. And if you don't have good fruit, it comes from a tree that's not good. And this is the distinction between a condition the tree, or a state of being, and the action, the fruit. You follow me? So sinfulness for, for Luther and Calvin and for the Reformation was a condition, a state of being, a, a, a mode of existence prior to any sinful deeds, sinful actions. So we may think of sin as wrongdoing, it's actually kind of a superficial view of sin. Sin has to do mainly with our relationship with God, and then after that, our, our relationships with one another. It's got a, a Godward or, or vertical aspect prior to uh, a horizontal or humanward aspect. But however we think of sinful actions, they are understood by Luther and Calvin on the basis of Scripture and on the basis of verses like this uh, tree and fruit teaching of Jesus that sinful deeds reflect a prior sinful condition. So the basic idea, and, and this comes out as the, the questions that we'll be looking at unfold, but, but not, uh, we won't get to all the final ones this week. Uh, it comes out that uh, no one can enter into the presence of God and have a fellowship with God, have union and communion with God in Christ, who is not righteous. So righteousness as a condition is uh, necessary for union and communion with God through Christ. Uh, so if, if we're sinful, uh, God is of purer eyes than to be old evil. Uh, uh, we don't have any access to God. 
as long as we remain sinful as a condition. So it's the condition that matters, and the deeds, the fruits, are symptoms of the tree. They're symptoms of the condition. And somehow the predicament, the plight, is that as sinful human beings, we're utterly cut off from God. We stand under God's judgment. God says no to us in our sinfulness, along with our sinful deeds. And therefore, something has to happen to bring about a transition from sinfulness to righteousness. See, and I, that's, that's more implicit in the German translation, Gerecht vor Gott, than this English translation, right with God. So I mean, we have to be right with God. You know, the, the relationship has to be straightened out, has to be rectified. But somehow it means being granted a, a new condition, a new being. That's part of what being born again is about, I mean, getting a new being. You know, how, how, do we, how do we make that transition from our uh, inherited uh, sinful condition, which is called original sin, how, how do we make that transition to a new condition of righteousness, which makes it possible for us to enter into a living and positive uh, and healthy relationship with God? So... Th- th- the first clue we get here is the prepositional phrase at the very beginning of this statement. In Christ, I am right with God, or in Christ, I am righteous before God. And then it continues, and heir to life everlasting. The prepositional phrase in Christ is very important here. Uh, it's not an easy phrase to explain. It, it's very simple, you know, in Christ, just two words. But it gets at a very profound uh, reality on which everything hinges. So uh, I, I don't even feel that I have uh, the right general category in which to put it. I, I think in Christ is a, a kind of uh, spiritual idea uh, somehow we're in Christ spiritually, or uh, Calvin actually used the term unio mystica once or twice. That, that, that not in your ordinary sense of mysticism, but for lack of a better term, to be in Christ is to be in some sort of mystical union with Christ, to be in a union and communion with Christ. We'll see by the time we get to the end of this segment in the Heidelberg Catechism that the, uh, this idea is being presupposed even though it's not being brought out here. See, the Catechism doesn't pause the way I am and asking, what does it mean to be in Christ? And how do you get to be in Christ? But everything depends for the Reformation on our being righteous in Christ before God. So the whole Reformation depends on the gift of righteousness that comes out of this special relationship, which, for lack of a better term, I'll call a mystical relationship or a spiritual relationship. Luther's way of summarizing the Reformation, 
can be put in a single sentence. Uh, and he had uh, every conceivable variation on this sentence. You know, but the, the, the heart of it was Christ is our righteousness and our life. So if you can remember that, you will have remembered the heart of the Reformation. You often, uh, when people think about this, or I, I actually, when I was a boy, we all, before I was in the Presbyterian Church, uh, my family were Lutherans. And the, the verse that was always uh, emphasized, I, I can even still remember from my early years, was the just shall live by faith. You know, the, there was a movie uh, that came out about Martin Luther, I remember. We lived in western Pennsylvania. We went into Pittsburgh to see this movie about Luther. You know, looking back, it's, it's kind of a hokey movie. You know, it's, it's, it kind of uh, uh, make, makes Luther uh, into a, a mythological hero. But uh, you know, he, he stood up, you know, here I stand, uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the just shall live by faith is supposed to be the verse that sparked his thinking to let righteousness before God depend on faith. Well, actually, there's another verse that is even more important than Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 is important. Of course, it appears at the beginning of Romans, the just shall live by faith. It's, it's a quotation from Habakkuk. It could mean the righteous person shall live by faith. 1 Corinthians 1.30, uh, it's a complicated verse, but uh, taking the second part of it and simplifying it, it states that he is our righteousness, uh, our uh, <clears throat> wisdom, our sanctification, and our redemption. So here, it identifies Christ with certain, you might say, saving predicates or, or certain, certain descriptions. It, it's a who and what question. Christ is our what? He's our righteousness, he's our wisdom, he's our sanctification, and our redemption. I think this means, for both Luther and Calvin, that you don't get righteousness or any of these other spiritual qualities apart from the person of Christ. And Christ gives himself to us, and in giving himself to us, he gives us his righteousness, his wisdom, his sanctification, and his redemption. So uh, it's not as if Christ is one thing, and righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, and redemption are something else, the who and the what belong together here. It's a kind of unity in distinction. You don't have the one without the other. We need both aspects. We need to think about the who, the personal side. We need to think about the what, the, you know, the saving predicates, you know, justification and sanctification and so on. But they are inseparable from a relationship with Christ. And that relationship with Christ is indicated here by the prepositional phrase, in Christ. Now, what's the opposite of in Christ? Remember, I asked, what's the opposite of righteousness? And I suggested it's sinfulness. What's the opposite of in Christ? Well, it's, it's not a diametrical opposite, 
But there's a corresponding term. I think these two terms need to be paired and thought of together. Although here I'm uh, making a kind of synthesis of uh, different phrases from the New Testament that are rarely brought together in, in this way. But uh, in Christ is paired with Christ in us. So in our tradition, uh, it's especially in the Latin West, uh, we tend to think of Christ in us. You know, my heart, Christ's home, or Christ entering into my life, or Christ, Christ uh, ha having some kind of presence in us or, or to us. You know, on the human side, I, I think that's indispensable. It, it, it's uh, uh, very important. But the prior relationship that makes Christ being in us possible is our being in Christ. I think we're in Christ by grace before Christ is in us by faith. I mean, think of Paul, for example, on the road to Damascus. Paul was saved by grace, as it were, before he was saved by faith. You know, he was knocked off his horse. I mean, he, he didn't make some decision that allowed Christ to enter into his life. I mean, he was dead set against the, the church, and he, he was a persecutor, and grace came uh, uh, sort of vertically down from above. Christ confronted him. Why are you persecuting me? He thought he was persecuting the church, but Christ says, why are you persecuting me? You know, grace encountered him first, and that brought about faith. And uh, in the Reformed tradition especially, we have emphasized the doctrine of election or predestination. And you know, a crucial verse for the Reformed tradition has been uh, Ephesians 1.4, I think it is, that we're chosen in Christ. There's that phrase again, from before the foundation of the world. So that's before you can know about it, before you can respond to it, uh, before you, it, it makes any sense to you. Grace has been operating first, and then faith is the response. We, we might think of this as something like the relationship between thunder and lightning, or, or better, lightning and thunder. If you think about it, you know, the lightning comes first. You see the flash of lightning out the window, and then you hear the rumble of thunder, but the one follows the other. So grace is like the flash of lightning, and faith is the response. It's the follow-up. And faith is in us, so to speak. It's a spiritual reality in our lives, in our existence, in our hearts. But it depends on grace. And so the Reformed, especially more than Luther, who had the idea straight in his head, but rhetorically, he just emphasized faith. Faith, faith, faith. Faith did everything for Luther. Uh, and he didn't deny grace, but he just didn't emphasize it. <clears throat> but the Reformed tended to uh, latch on to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it talks about being justified by grace through faith. See, so that's that same arrangement of giving priority to grace and having faith be dependent on grace. So the first act is God's act. The first act is the act of grace. That, that's the act that encountered Paul when he was going completely in the wrong direction. <clears throat> that, that is somehow prior to even uh, our being born, if we were elected in Christ from before the foundation of the world. But 
the response, the proper response to grace is faith, and grace doesn't come to fulfillment until faith. But faith is faith in Christ, and then also faith in true beliefs. Now, Calvin said that the chief work of the Holy Spirit, I can't quite see what, I'm over time here. I'm going to have to round this up here. I'll pick up on this point next time. Uh, Calvin said that the chief work of the Holy Spirit was faith, and the chief consequence of faith was to bring us into union with Christ. I, I think that's good. I, I want to round that picture out, and, and I'll close on this point, but it has to do with this phrase that uh, I stopped on, in Christ. I think we can say, going just a little bit beyond Calvin, and this is not anything contrary to Calvin, he says exactly what I'm going to say. He just doesn't say it concisely. He doesn't pull these threads together the way I want to do. I think the Holy Spirit has two primary functions. The Holy Spirit brings Christ to us and brings us to Christ. And the Holy Spirit does that. You see, that's grace. You know, you know, talking about the Holy Spirit is another way of talking about grace, the divine initiative. And the Holy Spirit does that primarily through word and sacrament. So through word and sacrament, you know, we're brought to faith and therefore into a living union with Christ. But Christ has already uh, taken us into account in his grace. You know, we're, we're somehow in Christ objectively before we come to be in Christ in a living or subjective way. So I want to make a distinction between uh, the objective and the subjective. And you know, Christ has already included us, at least those who are the elect in traditional reform terms, uh, before we come to know about it and respond to it and have our lives changed uh, uh, by the encounter with Christ through grace. But the Holy Spirit brings Christ to us through word and sacrament and then brings us to Christ so that we have a living relationship with Christ, which Calvin and Luther both understood as union and communion with Christ. So this, this is the framework. I have to stop here. This is the framework for understanding the Reformation doctrine of justification because Christ gives us his righteousness and life by giving us himself. And he gives us himself through word and sacrament. And in giving us himself, he gives us all the righteousness that we will ever need to have access before God. His righteousness becomes our righteousness and overrides our sinfulness as a free gift. It's a free gift of God so that uh, henceforth the Christian life means uh, nothing more than to live a life of gratitude. We don't have to strive to make ourselves acceptable to God by our works uh, or to acquire merit. Uh, the, the free gift of uh, grace in Christ means that his righteousness is made to be ours, and he gives us his righteousness and life in giving us himself in the power of the Holy Spirit through word and sacrament. So that, that's the context within which to think about the mystery of justification by faith, and we'll pick up on that 
uh, next Sunday.